calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today I am delighted to bring you a conversation I had with author Yenta Huang, who is the author of a new book called Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. So this is a biography, a new biography of Anime Wong, who is becoming better and better known lately. I think there's recently been, we talk about this, in America, there was a coin, a quarter was released with her portrait on it. Barbie released a special doll of her. She's been looked at more and more lately, which is great because in her life, she was extremely famous, but also faced a lot of challenges as a Chinese American actress in Hollywood. She was born in a Chinese laundry in turn of the century Los Angeles, like 1905. And she just growing up around in Los Angeles, like around the movie industry, she found her way, she made her way, I should say, to to becoming an actress in movies. And Yinta and I talk about her, just some some highlights of her life story. He gets into it all in much more detail in his book, but I just thought a lot of people may not know who she is or may only vaguely know who she is. And I wanted to really whet your appetite about how much there is to know about Anime Wong and why you should all read this book. So please enjoy this conversation with Yinta Huang. So welcome, Yinta. I'm so glad to, to be able to talk to you about this fascinating new book that you've written. Well, thank you for having me. My first question for you is, do you remember when you first learned about who Anime Wong was? Well, she was my great aunt, if I don't mind me saying so. I'm sorry. I didn't know that connection. No, so I'm sorry, it's a joke. <laughs> it's oh, a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because actually, Wang and Huang, uh, the same family name, uh, just spelled differently. But as you, as you may know, in China, you know, if your family share the family name, then if you go back 500 years, then you're in the same family. So anyway... Uh, I imagine somewhere uh, in this universe, yeah. uh, I'm connected to her because of the same last name. 
But anyway, I think the first time I heard of her, as you know, I wasn't born in this country. I grew up in China. I went to college there and then came here after college. And then I got stuck. I think one of those years in the United States, I had first heard of her. I'm trying to remember when I first heard of her as well. I think it was probably recently because she's had quite a resurgence in popularity lately. Yes, uh, she. I would say uh, she's having her moment, you know, thank God. <laughs> well, and it just connects well with, I think your biography is so perfectly timed because people like myself want to know more about her because things happened like there was this coin that came out in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, the U.S. quarter. I've been collecting them, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> because my plan is uh, when my book comes out late August, uh, when I go to book signings and talks, you know, I'll be handing out Anime One quarters uh, for, you know, each reader will come to me with a book. Oh, that's beautiful. So what I'm hoping we can talk about today a bit is just for people who have vaguely heard of her or people who have never heard of her, just to explain sort of the the highlights of her life, which I know is a big question because there's an awful lot of exciting things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you could just start explaining her, where did she come from? What were her parents doing? What city was she in? Right. Her story, you can say, sort of like a a typical Hollywood story or like the Barbie film, which is going on around right now. And she's always, you know, looked at as a China doll. We can talk about that, you know, in greater detail. But in a nutshell, uh, she was born in Los Angeles in the beginning of 20th century, uh, 1905 in her, you know, father's little Chinese laundry. And uh, so her story, in a nutshell, is really her rise from the steam and starch her, of a Chinese uh, laundry to a global stardom, becoming one of the um, most visible Chinese icons uh, in the 20th century. And she was also a, a fashion icon as well. And, uh, you know, so she had really had this talent and unique ability to um, to bring, let's say, working class, you know, objects such as coolie hat and coolie jacket, turn out those into uh, high fashion. So she has this kind of ability both on screen and off screen. But unfortunately, you you speak of highlight, you know, uh, my interest at the time was really to dive to look behind the spectacle and, and the glamour and see what lies underneath. So. This highlights of her life was really the rise, but also, you know, what stopped her from going any further. You know, I guess most people were drawn, you know, by her, attracted by her beauty, apparently, as a, as a you know, a film star. But her looks, in some ways, uh, was exactly what prevented her from going any further because was, she was Chinese. And unfortunately, she lived in a period when Chinese were regarded as too Chinese uh, to play. A Chinese, if you can, you know, it's a kind of tongue twister. Yeah. Well, and in your book, you just the what was happening in world history during her whole life. There is so many um, the context you really get into the Chinese Exclusion Act you talk about. And then when the Hayes Code came out saying, you know, there can't be any mixed race kisses in movies and things like at every step of the way, there was things getting in her way. Oh, absolutely. So. I mean, her birth, uh, she was born in Los Angeles, and just like three decades earlier, there was the Chinese massacre in, in this sleepy town now we know as Los Angeles, right? So she was born in a very kind of environment which was very hostile to Chinese. 
but interestingly, as I describe in the book, you know, Chinatown was inseparable from Hollywood or vice versa. And uh, so in a way, she was lucky, you know, to, to be there when Hollywood came to Chinatown because of the exoticism. And, uh, and you know, early films are often take advantage of the, the realist kind of street scenes uh, in Chinatown and the laundry, for instance, the robotic movement and everything. So she was like, almost like perfect maid for early cinema. And so that was the kind of moment how she taps, her story taps into what's going on uh, in the world in a larger context. And then when she felt kind of uh, felt kind of fed up with Hollywood in early part of her career, and she went to uh, Europe, right? So she arrived in, like, for instance, in Germany in, in 1928, and uh, Weimar Republic. Basically, Germany was dancing on the ver- on the edge of a volcano because right before the rise of Nazism, but for a short span of uh, about a decade, you know, Germany witnessed this kind of sudden explosion of creativity uh, right before Hitler's rise. So she was there, and she was hanging out with, say, uh, Marlena Dietrich and uh, and Hitler's camera woman, later on known as, you know, Riefenstahl, right? Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. So she was hanging out with them as well, and then she went to England. So that's, again, her trajectory tapped into uh, the the significant events of world history, uh, and then, of course, her visit to China uh, in, in 1936, right before the Japanese invasion. And then, you know, moving to the, the Second World War period in which she was also very active as the, to campaign, you know, for war relief and everything. So every step of the way, uh, you can see, you know, her rise, her, you can see her fall. Or, you know, I, I really want to describe that as sort of like a, a virtual form of foot binding uh, for a Chinese woman the Hollywood racism, uh, but also gender. And later on, for instance, uh, I spent a lot of time talking about ageism against, uh, against women, especially uh, and you know, headache for, for Hollywood. A big problem still exists today. And so her story really, I think for me, uh, taps into so many things that, that we sometimes would like to forget. Can you talk about her, like right from the beginning, I found her such a fascinating and I don't know, the ambition, I guess, the the clarity with which she knew she wanted to be an actress. You talk about her as a small child. Her sister get, wants one doll and she wants a bunch of little dolls so she can so she can act out the stories herself. Like she was a storyteller right away, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. And now she's the big doll, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mattel just issued a you know, very timely uh, anime one doll uh, for that matter. So uh, she can be everybody's everybody's collection of dolls. Oh yes, absolutely. In early years, she was really she, she dreamed of becoming a, a film star, and who wouldn't in those years? Uh, if you're growing up in the early 20th century when film was just rising, right? And uh, that gave every boy or girl this dream because you know watching this thing called a cinema. A film is such a new excitement uh, in terms of technology. Today, you know, every child has a, has a phone or, you know, so I have constantly have problems with, you know, teaching students who constantly are on the phone in class. <laughs> so imagine that. And the film was a, such a brand new thing for, you know, uh, for the world at the time and inevitably. But like I said, um, unlike at the time, it was called uh, movie struck girls, right? It's kind of, again, kind of sexist term. You know, uh, 
because it describes usually uh, any American girl growing up in way west, uh, many of them will just buy one-way train tickets. Uh, to come to LA and a step off the train and uh, whatever happens to them, you know, all these stories. And uh, for Anime One, however, um, you know, she didn't need to go to Hollywood. Hollywood came to her, like I said, uh, because Hollywood, you know, the film crew will often come to Chinatown for the ready-made uh, sets, right? And so she was hanging out and, and all that. So her debut as you know, was in this silent uh, film, 1919, called The Red Lantern. And she was one of the extras uh, carrying, you know, lantern carriers. But she was so excited, you know, about her debut. So debut, uh, when the film came out, she, you know, she starved her, herself for a week to save the lunch money so she could proudly uh, take her friends to the, to, to the show. And then, they, you know, they set up, sat in a, upper gallery of this, uh, you know, uh, theater. And then, of course, when the scenes came out, uh, she couldn't find where she was. And so her friend said, uh, which one are you? <laughs> you know? And she said, I don't know. Maybe it's the outside one. Despite all that, again, because of her tenacity and her beauty and everything, this is a very important step in her career as, uh, you know, uh, Ala uh, Nazimova, uh, this Ukrainian uh, actress who was really one of the I think will will be called the queen of silent film. Uh, Alana Nazimova was the woman I would say like Marion Monroe in the nineteen you know tens and twenties, and she was one of the first silent stars. She rose and uh, became really rich, and she bought a Spanish house on Sunset Boulevard. At the time was a very kind of you know dusty kind of um, countryside area, uh, but she bought a a, a big house. And the design a pool in the shape of a black sea in honor of her birth birthplace, right? And so, Anime One, uh, as a teenager, uh, was sort of like uh, recruited, or in today's lingo, you would say groomed in some ways, because Anna Nazimova uh, is the woman who coined the term called uh, the sewing circle. It's a kind of discreet code for lesbian and um, homosexual um, uh, actors called the sewing circle. So anyone was going around uh, joining the parties in those years, and uh, and that gave her some connection to Hollywood, and uh, you know, be opening a, a bigger door. And uh, so a lot of actually early actresses uh, came through at the time called Allah's, uh, you know, uh, Garden, and which is the club uh, for uh, young women, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood-inspired uh, uh, young women. And so you talk about, throughout the, the book, you describe her various films and what the characters were that she was given to perform. And can you explain, um, well, just explain the sorts of roles that she had to take, because that's what was available to a, to a Chinese woman. Right. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, because of Hayes Code, which kind of doomed her career because uh, a Chinese woman cannot kiss or be kissed by a white man. That basically doomed her role as a uh, uh, for any kind of lead role, right? Um, despite all of that, um, so her biggest first biggest film was in uh, *Tall of the Sea*, uh, 1922, a silent film. But also interestingly, she plays this kind of Madame Butterfly character. It's actually a remake of Madame Butterfly. But it's interesting that she was given this lead role. Um, uh, kind of ironically, because uh, it was like the first Technicolor 
film, okay? And to test the color, and this is how cynical, you know, the story is, Hollywood is somewhat insidious, um, that they need real Chinese or Asian actors in order to test how, you know, how the color works. And for that reason, um, uh, that she was uh, given the, the lead role, uh, not just because of Madame Butterfly story, because they could have easily cast uh, a white actress in a yellow face, because actually earlier there was another Butterfly film earlier by Mary uh, Pickford. And so that was a yellow face. But because they needed to test the technology, they, they cast her. But of course, uh, she didn't mind that. And she you know took the opportunity, did a great job. And went on to play uh, again a side, you know, not lead role, but but a, a smaller role in uh, this big production uh, in 1924, which is the Thief of Baghdad. That's uh, Douglas Fairbanks, and uh, and she was fantastic in that film. But like I said, because despite all this, you know, um, great performances, uh, she was not given any more kind of lead roles, and that's why she took off uh, for Europe. And there, uh, I think she really turned herself, you know, she left America as like a a flapper, you know, wearing uh, chic clothing. And uh, she turned herself in Europe into a really a a global star because uh, I'm not saying, you know, there was no racism in Europe, (laughs) but there's a very different kind of environment. Uh, The fact that she was both American and Chinese gave her some kind of a way into the European market and... uh, well, for some, you know, in some ways, uh, the European directors didn't really know what to make of her, you know, whether it's Chinese or whether it's American. But either way, it worked out for her. So her biggest film, I would say, uh, is uh, Piccadilly, uh, you know, uh, made in England uh, in 1929. And that was really, I think, uh, a swan song of the silent era. She was cast in the most, uh, I would say, provocative and erotic uh, role. And she showed off her all her talent, you know, dancing. And, uh, um, but of course, it's silent film. So if you were to ask me, you know, what's my favorite, I would say uh, Piccadilly. It's, uh, it's, it's almost like noirish, uh, film noirish, because there's murder at, at, at the end. And, uh, and also the, the limehouse scene, you know, typical Chinatown kind of eerie environment. And then there's a connection to the, the posh, you know, uh, uh, West End uh, club scene as well. So everything is going on in that film. And so you mentioned that was sort of the swan song of the of the silent era. So she she just lived through so many changes, even just the development of the film industry, and then the switch to to talking movies. And how did she? Not every actor survived that switch, but she she was able to. Not at all. I mean, a lot of. Uh, Famous silent stars uh, fell by the wayside. You know, uh, the minute they start talking, the the one syllable will dispel the whole kind of magic. <laughs> you know, the perfect image they had curated all these years in a silent era. So the same thing happened to Anime Wang. Not in film first. Um, Piccadilly. You know, she had a fantastic um, performance. And she was really talk of the town in London. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying she would draw fans like the Beatles, but, um, but <laughs> you know, British gentlemen and girls will flock to her outside theaters. And uh, the British, you know, girls will imitate her called Anime Wang Bang, you know, the, 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 the hairstyle. 
and a complexion as well. They will, you know, paint her, their faces they call the anime one complexion as well. Imagine that. Um, but, uh, and then, so once again, ironically, because of her success, uh, she was asked to uh, play a lead role in theater uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a translated Chinese play called The uh, Circle of Chalk. And uh, so the moment she spoke, on theater, uh, on the stage, uh, the critics were still attracted by her talent in performance. But her Calif- what they call the California twang <laughs> came out and it was quite shocking. And that's when she realized, okay, you know, she needed to make the transition. So she spent a lot of money. I think it was like 200 guineas, uh, uh, one lesson, uh, you know, hired a coach from Oxford University to study voice. And only then she was able to make the transition. So she left America speaking, you know, with a California twang. She came home uh, in 1930, affecting kind of upper class British accent. I'm not saying it's fake, but she's very talented in, you know, uh, fashioning herself, turning herself into uh, a marketable, I think, uh, actress. I mean, that's her profession, you know, um, like all uh, actors today. They need to do something in order to to be um, to be marketable, right? And then, can we talk about her trip to China? Because she was Chinese American, but she had never been to China until she took this very significant trip. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to 
become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Absolutely. Uh, like many Chinese Americans, you know, born in this country, uh, they have heard so many stories about the great country out there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so she left for, America, uh, for China in 1936 uh, after, once again, having her heart broken because uh, she really wanted to this uh, big role, uh, you know, uh, in uh, The Good Earth based on Pearl Buck's uh, uh, novel. And that was like really the biggest, um, you know, uh, China film at the time called uh, 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 of those years. And she really wanted the old land this, uh, in this role. But again, it was given to, uh, as you know, Austrian actress uh, Louise Rayner uh, in a yellow face performance. But, you know, to Rayner's credit, she won Oscar for that role. But anyone was really pissed off. And so she took off for China to, to visit her, you know, fatherland, ancestral land where her father already retired from his laundry business um, uh, in LA and uh, moved to China with her siblings. So it's kind of natural for her to go, go to China. So imagine Shanghai in pre-war, uh, before the, right before the war, it was such a magical place. And uh, if you know, for instance, Emily Hung, another very famous uh, you know, American, who turned herself into a legend, uh, scandalizing Shanghai and all that. You can look into that. It was a kind of mind-boggling place uh, before the war broke out. And there was also, later on, there was Jewish refugees and everything. So anyone went there, she was astonished by, like, this is this really China that I've heard so much about? And in comparison, she would write, you know, uh, letters to her friends and she would say, like, wow, compared to, you know, say to Shanghai, uh, Hollywood is like backwater. It's so quiet, as if nothing was going on. And in Shanghai, everything was going on. And, uh, and then when she went to Hong Kong, another kind of, you know, uh, Chinese city, but colonized by, by British and uh, turned into, again, another international hub. Um, uh, she met... Um, um, just give you an example, the kind of people she met and, uh, you know, what she learned from all that uh, for for those uh, nine months. Uh, in Hong Kong, for instance, uh, she met uh, this grand old man of Hong Kong. That's his nickname. And he was actually the son of, uh, of uh, Moses, Moses uh, Bosman, who is a uh, Dutch Jewish uh, merchant who basically uh, made a fortune out of Chinese coolie trade. And the reason I mentioned this story was not just because of her, you know, her family connection, you know, the, the, the background of Chinese coolies coming from Canton to make it in America and thanks to Moses Bosman, but actually because of Bruce Lee, the connection. You know, you know Bruce Lee was Jewish, right? <laughs> we all know that Bruce Lee, you know, who, you know, turned Kung Fu into an English word. And Bruce Lee, as a matter of fact, uh, her, you know, his uh, great-grandfather, um, uh, you know, Moses Bosman was Jewish, right? And uh, so Bruce Lee was one-eighth Jewish, uh, one-fourth British, and a five-eighth Chinese. Lo and behold, who will know that, right? Uh, so anyone met, you know, with Bruce Lee's uh, great uncle and, you know, talking Cantonese and all that. And of course, at the time, Bruce Lee was nowhere, you know, was the one who wasn't born yet. But what I'm saying is that this trajectory, if you look at a story, 
how it's connected to all this. Uh, Bruce Lee, of course, represents the Asian masculinity, whereas Anime Wang, um, however you want to put it, you know, she's somewhere between a, a Madam Butterfly, China Doll, and, and a Dragon Lady. This kind of intimidating uh, image and, and a kind of timid uh, Chinese, uh, you know, girl. And so this iconography, you know, these stories are somehow all interconnected um, through her trajectory. I found it really, it was interesting because you mentioned, you know, she's always seen as this fashionable, chic woman. And then when she went to China, she had, she made a decision to start embracing Chinese fashion. Can you talk about that? So I wouldn't say she introduced Qi Pao or Chong Song uh, to, to the West. But she didn't definitely is a person she wore, you know, their clothing the best and then turned that into a, a global kind of uh, trend, right? And uh, so, uh, yeah, so uh, over there, um, when she landed in Shanghai and then Peking, you know, she saw the, the new trend on the street, modern Chinese girls wearing, chang, you know, Changsang or Qi Pao in Chinese. And uh, so she started, you know, uh, ordering uh, um, uh, expensive silk and in order to you know, turn them into a design that is more uh, adaptable uh, for, you know, uh, for Caucasian women uh, you know, when she brought them back. So she's kind of cultural go-between in many ways. And, uh, and so she went, when eventually she came back from you know, the initial purpose, actually, um, of her trip to China, not just to visit her family and her father, but also to study Chinese theater. And uh, as a result, she also brought back, uh, you know, uh, Chinese theater dresses as well, along with uh, this Qi um, Pao. And so Hollywood, there was a big party in 1938. Uh, it's still available today on YouTube, actually, the video. It's a, it's a Hollywood party in which Anime One introduced her, the clothes she just brought back. She was wearing this kind of yellow gold Qi Pao and she said, you know, it was cut in Peking and I brought it back. And it's something Chinese women, you know, had worn for thousands of years. Uh, again, she's, uh, you know, importing, introducing uh, one important aspect of uh, Chinese culture in this case is fashion. It was so interesting that she, as you described, when she started acting in Hollywood, she was seen as too Chinese to play Chinese. She was born in America. She had an American accent. And then... After this trip to China, it seems like she really embraced that side of things. She really, she was really moved by what she learned about the theater and the fashion and the culture. Right. Um, I was, you know, I said uh, in the book, she was going to China to look for her Chinese soul. And the question is whether or not she has found it. But it leaves no doubt, she, you know, when she came back, uh, the, the Sino-Japanese war broke out. And it became a no-brainer that she would not, you know, um, fully embrace her Chinese identity in that context, not just because of war relief, but the, the war also touched her very, you know, uh, personally quite deeply because her family was back there. And uh, when Japanese bombed Shanghai in 1937, uh, so called Bloody Saturday, you know, her brother was just, just fortunately left Shanghai like a few hours ago for Hong Kong. Uh, but unfortunately, her uh, her sister Mary, for instance, or you know, she was not hurt in a bombing, but she suffered from uh, PTSD because shrapnel kind of destroyed her office building in Shanghai. So when Mary eventually came back home to Hollywood, 
uh, unfortunately, a few years later, you know, she suffered from depression and everything, uh, especially PTSD, and Mary uh, committed suicide. So, so the war really touched her very deeply. And as you can see, how active she was uh, as a, you know, in the um, uh, in the war relief for China in first, and then when Pearl Harbor, you know, happened, uh, when America, whole country. Uh, was involved in the war. She became even more active and uh, going around the country raising money for war relief uh, in Asia. That was, throughout the book, I was always impressed by whenever she chose to do something, she committed to it so entirely when she wanted to be an actress, when she wanted to be a theater actor, and then the war relief. She was she did everything with such passion. It was It was very inspiring in a way. Right. But so once again, even there, you see how the world tried to stop her. <laughs> just give you an example, right? You know, she just made this film called The Lady from Chongqing, right? Chongqing at the time was the wartime capital of China. And it was a war kind of propaganda film. And it was one of the most important films she made in those, you know, after uh, her stardom. Uh, but she wasn't really the face of China war relief in those years. But when the real so-called uh, lady from Chongqing, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, came to the United States to uh, for a speaking tour, and uh, they eventually had a Hollywood, you know, you know, roll out the red carpet to welcome Madame Chiang Kai-shek, and they had a, the finale of the celebration was a it was a, a big kind of uh, event at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, the only one who was missing, not invited to the occasion, was Anime Wong. So once again, as you see how wholeheartedly she devoted herself to whatever she set her mind to, but somehow, you know, she encountered these obstacles. That's really uh, one of the stories I want to share. And that's that's such an important thing about her life story. There is so much, when I was reading it, I thought, wow, you know, her strength and her resiliency, but it's too, it's obviously terrible that she had to be so strong and resilient all the time because she was always something was always getting in her way, mm-hmm. often racism, right? Right, yeah. I mean, this is really, again, you know, uh, speaking kind of uh, uh, in a self-reflective mode, speaking of myself, and I mean, I'm, I'm drawn to all these stories like Anime Wong or my two earlier books, uh, Siamese Twins, Chiang and Anne Bunker, or the Charlie Chang book, and, you know, Chang Apana and all that. This is a kind of trilogy, right, of uh, what I call the Asian American history. Uh, I'm interested in looking at how you know, uh, or interested in telling the Asian American story in the making of uh, American culture. Uh, this kind of, I, always, I would call that kind of subversive genealogy of Asian Americans and this icon, cultural icons. But, uh, you know, I really want to show that the extra kind of mental, psychic, emotional cause for ethnic minorities in this country, you know, to, to get, just to become uh, just to be like everybody else, you know, what, what extra step you have to take. There's always kind of extra, you know, uh, cost. And, and, and the, in her case, it became really accented, uh, accented, you know, emphasized and uh, foregrounded. Well, and I, I would presume that's part of what led to the fact that she died quite young. I would think just living with this level of stress, for lack of a better word, that would just contribute to it lots of physical symptoms. Absolutely. I'm sure you have, you know, uh, 
Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> the, the film, and uh, Norma Desmond. Um, I'm not saying this is, you know, anyone kind of portrait at all, but anyone definitely, uh, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, we can talk more about it if we have time, maybe not. But just the kind of nutshell. So anyone in her late years, um, she was only actually late 40 and early 50. Um, she turned to, in, in depression, she turned to, you know, the bottle, uh, like many Hollywood uh, actors in those years. And so I imagine her, you know, this global icon for decades now, uh, a lonely celibate, you know, a, a lonely woman, uh, unmarried and uh, living uh, in a house by herself. And um, so um, she will have, you know, a drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other. And eventually it destroyed her health. So many female stars from this era, as soon as they turned, I don't know, 35, they just, it's a similar thing happens to so many people. And for her, it had this extra level of how much she had struggled just to get roles in the first place. And now Mm -hmm. she was an older woman. She's Asian. It's things have, I don't think, gotten any better in terms of trying to find roles for Asian people by the time she was in her 40s and 50s. So not at all, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I, 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 I'm, like I said earlier, people are drawn to the spectacles and, and the glamour. And I'm, but I'm really interested in what's, what, what lies underneath all that. And her later, you know, uh, career or life uh, really tells a, a very kind of revealing story about not just Hollywood, but overall, you know, what's uh, in our culture, uh, even today, in some ways, right? And so the the Sunset Boulevard analogy is quite, you know, uh, apropos. And, um... Why do you think there is an interest nowadays? Why do you think Anna Mae Wong has, she, there's the coin, there's the Barbie doll, where, why do you think she's having this resurgence? That's a big question, certainly. <laughs> um, I need to, uh, you know, look up my book of change, <laughs> I think, to find out uh, what the hell is happening. But I would say, you know, I think it's a confluence of, of many things. If you just look around and what's going on in Hollywood or film, uh, I can name like a, a number of factors. OK, so for quite a few decades, uh, the you know Chinese money, which was funding a lot of the Hollywood you know mega films, has certainly had to do with uh, increasing Chinese visibility or interest in Asian, uh, Netflix uh, you know Korean films as well, and I mean, I'm talking about East Asian or Asian uh, films in general. The rise, uh, the interest in Asian stories, and uh, uh, so so that, but also and you know Crazy Rich Asian, for instance, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, a blockbuster film and uh, Michelle Yeoh winning Oscar and everything. These are all like, uh, uh, you know, historians like to look for explanations, right? But, but oh, of course, it's always hindsight. Uh, so we are still in this moment. Uh, I, I wouldn't kind of venture any guesses or even educated guesses, but I, I just want to draw attention to the past, uh, how we got here. And uh, it's easy in this kind of celebratory moment that we say, okay, now we are good. But actually, as you said earlier, you know, many of the things are still the same. And so what, what the shining surface, you know, you need to look underneath uh, uh, what's happening there. 
And I think that's part of what struck me about reading your book about Anna Mae Wong was I think it's still very similar for for many actors in Hollywood to to try and find a role that's worthy of their talents to try. And then after you have one role, trying to find the next one and those struggles, I think it's still quite similar. And her her story is universal in that way. Like it's specific as a Chinese American woman, but also just as anyone trying to make it in Hollywood, I think a lot of people would relate to her struggles. Absolutely. That's why I think her, I'm drawn not to just her success, the rise. I'm really looking at, you know, what what's happening. As I say, like a fishing season, you know, uh, or fishing off season sometimes. You don't know what you're going to find as if the role, what role will come to you, right? Her late career really interested me a great deal when I was doing research and writing, and I spent a lot of time digging into what it's like, really. But on a on a kind of you know sunnier side, we have given to her despite her depression and you know her suffering, all the the pains that she'll go through. She's really a, a brave spirit. I mean, she's a great joker. Uh, you know, as I found out, she's a brilliant writer, uh, barely finishing high school, but she managed to write beautifully. Uh, but it's also, she had this kind of ironic, tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, mannerism. You know, she would say, orientally yours, sign her, you know, publicity photos such a way. And she would say, and Confucius didn't say this, uh, when before she pulls off like, another dead pen. And she loves, uh, even in her late years, she loves telling like corny jokes, you know. <laughs> those those things, what you mentioned, her sense of humor and everything, it really it really comes across in your book. Just her as a as a whole person, which I found. I came into the book. I had seen the Thief of Baghdad years ago at a silent film event, mm-hmm. and I had thought, wow, oh, so that's anime Wong, and she's so captivating to watch in a movie. And I'd always wanted to learn more about her and then her story and who she was, as you describe it, it was so much more interesting than I ever would have thought. So your book is coming out towards the end of August. Are you going to be doing any sort of events or things around when the book launch happens? Oh, you're bad. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> one thing I, I have to do and I love doing is driving up and down the coast in California, doing quite a few uh, bookstore events uh, all the way from you know, locally in Santa Barbara, but also from, you know, all the way from down from San Francisco down to La Jolla in San Diego. And so if people want to find out where those events are going to be, is it listed on your website or is there another place they can look? I will say check the bookstores, local bookstores. I think that that'll be the best way to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm some kind of lazy maintaining my website. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is fine. So basically, if if you're in California listening to this, just check your local bookstore and oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. an event in uh, Pasadena, uh, Roman, and in San Diego will be like uh, DG Wells, my favorite bookstore down there, and locally in Santa Barbara is Chaucer's, and I'm trying to do an event in City Lights uh, bookstore in, in San Francisco. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm excited for you to be able to connect with readers and to to talk about this book with people in person. Yeah, handing out Animal One Quarters, if you're interested. Yes. Yeah, these are uncirculated, you know, mint <laughs> uh, from the U.S. Mint, actually. That's that's so lovely. And it's just, the timing seemed to work out so well for this book that Anime Wong is having this 
resurgence. So I think it's there's a lot of people who have heard about her and will be really interested to read your book to learn more of the story. Well, thank you, Anne, for having me. So, again, the book is called Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. It is available now, wherever you get your books from. And it's such an interesting book. I just ripped through this whole thing. Like, I couldn't, each next era in Anna's life was just like, what's she going to do next? And, you know, who's going to be, what forces does she have to work against and how is she going to get through it? It's such a fascinating book. I also really appreciate there's a lot of photographs in it. So when Yenta is talking about the different performances she did or different photo shoots she did, you can see photos of it. And it really just reminds you of how stunningly beautiful, how photogenic and just how alive she looks in these photos. It's like, of course, her career, you know, of course, people were drawn to her in movies like she stole so many scenes because she's just so fascinating to look at. And then learning about who she is as a person behind the beauty is also so interesting. Anyway, could not recommend this book more. It's so interesting. I know I'm going to be going down a rabbit hole of just looking for anime Wong performances online and wherever you can find them streaming because she's just such a fascinating person and her story is so important and has so many resonances to today's society. So anyway, you can find all the links in the show notes here to learn more about Yinta and to learn more about this book and to learn more about anime Wong. And so this is Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster. You can keep up with this show. We're on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. We're on TikTok at Vulgar History. And um, if you go to the website, vulgarhistory.com, we've got transcripts for recent episodes. If you like to read podcasts, you can do that there. And those are courtesy of Eveline Malik from The Wordery. Thank you so much, Eveline, for your incredible transcriptioning of my show. And if you want to get early ad-free access to episodes of Vulgar History, you can uh, join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer. And so there for a small monthly donation, if you pay at least $1 a month, then you get early ad-free access to all of the episodes. And if you pay at least $5 or more a month, you just get access to our bonus episodes. So anyway, that's all that's going on with me. I hope everybody is doing amazingly well and we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.